I want to invite you to take out your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. And hold your place at verse 11. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. Last week, I mentioned in my message that Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 happened to be some of the most debated verses on the subject of baptism. And so, even though last week I preached verses 11 through 15 to give the context of this section as we are doing our verse-by-verse study of the book of Colossians, I said I was going to come back today and deal specifically with the subject of baptism. And I want to preface with two things. Number one, especially if you're a visitor today, Today's sermon will be somewhat different than the norm in that I'm going to be doing a lot of teaching today in that I always teach when I preach that that comes out as by nature God has given me that desire to teach. But today will be even more so like a lesson. But please don't let that make you think that it's any less important than any other sermon. We, we need to be taught the Word of God, and we need to know why we believe and teach what we do. The second thing I, I want to say is that last night, my wife and I were having a wonderful time of personal Bible study. Our kids had gone to bed and given us some time of peace, and we decided to go through the sermon together, and about halfway through, she said, um, well, she didn't say it, but her eyes said, this is a lot. And so uh, I, I'm going to try to make this as digestible as possible because it is a lot. And um, I could just tell by her look at me that uh, you're going to do this all in one week. I said, well, there's an arch to this lesson, an arc rather to the lesson. And if I stop in the middle... Uh, it's just not going to be good. I want to do this all in one day. I want you to see this all uh, today. So with that being said, why are we talking about baptism? Well, there is a link in the passage that we're going to read in just a moment that links the concepts of circumcision and baptism together. And because of this, we have within the body of Christ two different perspectives on baptism particularly within the Reformed tradition, because we are a Reformed Baptist church, within the Reformed tradition, there are two strains or views on the subject of baptism, one being that of the Presbyterian Reformed and that being of that of the Baptist Reformed. And they have two different answers to the question, who is a proper candidate for baptism? And the reason for this is because the act of circumcision is tied to the act of baptism in this text. And therefore, the the argument from the Presbyterian side is that we ought to treat baptism the same way we treat circumcision in that not only does it go to the believer, but it goes to the believer's children. 
And so that's the subject that we're going to talk about today. And let's stand to give honor and reverence to the reading of the Word of God. And we will read from Colossians chapter 2. And we're only going to read verses 11 and 12 as the starting point for today's lesson. It says in verse 11, In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your truth. I pray that today that both Your Word and Your truth would be magnified. I pray that You would keep me from error. I pray that You would keep me tied to the post of Your revelation. I pray, Lord, that You would be glorified and Your people would be edified. I do pray, Lord... Also, a very specific prayer today. Lord, keep me from error. I pray that every week, but today more than ever. Lord, as I know that this is a subject upon which great men of God have differed. Men that I would respect and, in, and hold in high esteem would disagree with some of what I'm going to say today. So, Lord, I pray humbly that I would speak your word and your truth. And I pray, Lord, also that the people of God would hear the humility with which I speak and know, Lord, that I am not perfect and I seek the perfection of the Word of God, not my own, when preaching. I pray also, Lord, if there are those here today who do not know the Lord, that they would understand that salvation is not found in the labor of baptism, but rather at the cross of Christ, and that baptism is a sign of that wonderful covenant that we have been given that Christ has established in His blood. And as we studied last week, Father, He took our sins, He nailed them to the cross in His own body, took our punishment upon Himself and gave us His blessed righteousness. And Lord, that is something, wherever we stand on baptism, we ought ought, all to be able to agree. So Lord, give us humility today as we study in Christ's name. Amen. It's interesting that God would in His providence bring us to this passage today because it is in fact very true that right now we actually have five people who are being counseled for baptism. So this subject is not one that is just one that we're talking about in some philosophical way, but it's one that really practically applies to the church right now. We are preparing several people for baptism. And I want to say from the outset that, as I just said in my prayer, some of the most godly men that I have ever studied, that I have ever read, have been men that would disagree with me on some of the things that I'm going to say today. And so, on this particular debate, I want to make it very clear that I do believe that this is both an intramural debate 
meaning it is within the bounds of believers, that I'm not saying anyone who disagrees with me on this is not a believer, that, that needs to be said, but also this is a secondary doctrinal debate. This is not a primary doctrine. Primary doctrines, like the doctrines which relate to the divinity of Christ or justification by faith alone, those are things that all of us would agree on and we would all stand toe-to-toe with the world and we would be lockstep and joined arms against the world on those things. So it's important to know that. And I want to tell a quick story. My wife and I, we years ago went down to visit Dr. R.C. Sproul's church. This was back when he was still with us. And his church is only a few hours south of here. So one, one day when I had a Sunday off, we went down to visit his church. And it was in the old St. Andrew's building, which was much smaller than the current one that they have. Now the one looks sort of like Cinderella's Castle. It's this big, big building. The old building was much smaller. Wonderful place. Wonderful people got to see Dr. Sproul, talk to him a little bit. It was very nice. But I, upon leaving the church... And I want you to know that I got my wife's permission to tell this story. Because upon leaving the church, we were driving out and we were remarking on how behind the pulpit there was a giant glass, uh, stained glass window that had the picture of the Isaiah 6 uh, king with the seraphim around. If you remember that story in Isaiah 6, and it had, the, had that behind the baptistry, this beautiful stained glass picture. And Jennifer remarked how beautiful the stained glass was. And I said, yes, it is a wonderful stained glass picture. And she says, but if that stained glass is there, where's their baptistry? Because if you know anything about a Baptist church, you got communion table, pulpit, baptistry. And it's all in a line and it's all for a reason. Like this is our, this is our uh, construction. We put it all in the center and it's in this way. She said, where's their baptistry? I said, well, baby, did you see the little water fountain at the front? And she said, no. <laughs> How do you get a person in there? She didn't ask me that. That wasn't it. <laughs> no, no, she, she, she was just surprised because this was very early on in our studies. I mean, we were, we were very young and, and she did not know that Dr. Sproul was Presbyterian. So to, 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 to know that he didn't baptize people by putting them in a tub, that he didn't baptize people by immersing them in water, that to her was an immediate like shock because she thought everybody did that. And, you know, if you grow up a Baptist or if you've only been a member of a Baptist church, you might think that that's just what everybody does. And when you go into a church where they pour water or where they sprinkle, you might find yourself a little confused. And so, again, that is my reason for today. I, I want to address the, the different ways that people baptize and, and talk about why we do it the way we do. Why are we convicted? And we are convicted. This is not, and, and when I say it's not a primary issue, that does not mean it's not important. I would say the doctrines of grace are not a primary issue. Somebody cannot believe in Calvinism and not be saved. That's so, man, I don't think it's important because I do think it's important, just to be clear. 
So today we're going to discuss two different types of baptism. We're going to talk about, and I'm going to use this whiteboard, and I know if you're watching that we have, the camera got moved. By the way, if you're wondering why the sound room is up here now, it's because we really are hoping that wall comes out soon, and so we've been trying to migrate some things around, and that's why all of this is up here now. But um, we're going to talk about two different words, and that's why I have my big whiteboard that I asked for Adam to bring up here today. We're going to talk about something called credo baptism and pedo baptism. Now these are the points of contention for today's lesson. Credo baptism comes from the Latin which the word that prefixes the baptism here is the word credo and credo is Latin for I believe. So credo baptism is believer's baptism, meaning that the only people who are to be baptized are those who are able to profess faith in Jesus Christ. Now, one immediate argument that comes is, well, what if the person doesn't genuinely have faith? You can't look into somebody's heart and tell whether or not they have faith. That is true, but we can know whether or not they profess faith simply by asking, right? People come to the church all the time, and one of the first questions we ask is, do you know Christ? Do you know the Lord? Are you a believer, right? Now, again, I can't look into your heart. Caleb, when you met me and I met you, you were a believer, but I couldn't look into your heart and prove that's true. Now, we live life together now. We do life together, and I can learn more about you, seeing the works of repentance that are flowing in your life. But when I meet you, I have to sort of take you at your word. I'm a believer, and that's a I believe statement. It's a credo. Well, the word pedo-baptism has a prefix which refers to children. The word pedo meaning child. But more specifically, we would say infant. So we'll call this infant baptism. So we have two different types of baptism the credo baptism says we require a person to make a statement of faith. Pedo baptism says that a person who makes a statement of faith is to be baptized and his children. And his children. So for instance, let me look around the room and see who we have here today. Well, Matt and Anna came to our church, and they had two children at the time. They now have been blessed with a third. But when they came to our church, let's say they had come to our church as unbelievers, heard the gospel, and been saved. Praise the Lord, that would have been a wonderful thing, but they were already saved, so that's good too. <laughs> they come to the church, they get saved, we would baptize them. And by the way, that's important to realize that people who practice this also practice this. Dr. Sproul points that out in his lesson on infant baptism, is that they would still baptize an unbelieving adult if they'd never been baptized before, you see. So they would take someone's profession of faith as reason to baptize them had they not been baptized before, and they would baptize them. But they would also see in their family their two children, their lovely son and daughter, as also being candidates, hey baby, also being candidates for 
baptism. Because their children, according to this theology, their children are brought into the covenant community by birth. They are brought into the covenant community having been born to Christian parents or living in a Christian home. Now, those two positions obviously cannot both be right. This is one of those times where somebody's wrong. Sometimes you can agree to disagree and say, well, you might be right or I might be right. And that's, this is one of those times where one of us is wrong. And so we have to then go back to the Scripture to find our answer. And I want to say very clearly that the Bible does not explicitly say that we are to baptize infants. But it also does not explicitly forbid that we baptize infants. And therefore, when we talk about explicit statements, they're not as abundant as we might like. And therefore, we do have to draw some inferences from the text on both sides. And so we have to be honest about that. But very quickly, I do want to do, I want to do a little exercise here, as I normally do in the academy, we do, and I'm not going to ask you to interact because this isn't a lesson in that regard, but I do want you to think as I'm doing this up here. I want to first ask the question, who, who is on this side and who is on this side? Historically, who practices believers only baptism and who practices pedo baptism or infant baptism? The first that we should recognize is on the side of the Pado-Baptist, we have the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church has long practiced infant baptism. Uh, the next church that we could put on this side would be the Orthodox Church. The Orthodox Church has long... Have you ever seen an Orthodox infant baptism? They immerse them. At least the Roman Catholics and the others on this list pour the Eastern Orthodox. I know I shouldn't have done that, but that's, just, that's what they do. They go in and out like a figure eight, and the baby is well aware that they've been baptized <laughs> and unhappy. <laughs> um, but they do. They, they, they immerse in a giant silver basin. It's very neat to see. Uh, even though I disagree with it, it's still <laughs> neat to watch them do that. Um, so you have the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, uh, and then you have the Lutheran Church. This is one of those things that Luther was very firm about, about the baptism of infants. Now, we also have the, I'm going to say Presbyterian, but understand under Presbyterian, there's a lot of, there's a lot of space under that because we can talk about the Orthodox Presbyterian, the Presbyterian Church of America. We talk about the Scottish Presbyterian Church. We can talk about, there's a lot under that reformed umbrella, but we're just for now going to say Presbyterian. All right. So we have the Presbyterian Church. And finally, well, not finally, we can put the Anglicans and the Methodists. 
Now, the Methodists, I'm going to put a star next to it because the Methodists actually depends on the church. Some practice believer's baptism, some practice infant baptism, and some sort of do a hybrid where they let the parent decide, right? So the parent can choose one or the other. So, but understand this, Methodists are actually an offshoot of the Anglican church. And so that, if you understand some of the history of how these came about, you'll kind of begin to get a better picture of how all this happened. But notice that's a lot, right? Like, like, because when I get over here, trust me, it ain't going to be that many. <laughs> we are in the minority. Can I say, can I hear amen? Yeah, we're in the minority on this. We are. Both by virtue of how many churches and by virtue of history. We're going to talk about that in a minute too. So by virtue of churches, what churches practice believers' baptism? Baptists. I mean... <laughs> It's sort of in the name. What's another church practices believers' baptism? The Anabaptists. Now, some people believe those two groups are the same. Historically, they are not. In fact, one of the first things in the Baptist confessions that was written was, we ain't Anabaptists. Like, they, they like, like, if you read our confession, the 1646 confession, the 1644 confession, even the 1689, we're writing this to s- distinguish ourselves from the Anabaptists. Now, if you don't know who the Anabaptists are, the modern-day expression of the Anabaptists would be the, the Mennonites, the Amish, the Hutterites, uh, even the Quakers are offshoots of the, what was known as the Radical Reformation that came out of Switzerland in the 16th, uh, or, yeah, 16th century. 17th century. So uh, this is the two right away. But there's others. Uh, you may not realize this, but most of your Pentecostal friends are also believers' baptism. And some of you aren't super excited because you're like, well, if I had to have somebody on my team, I'd might rather. I mean, no offense. <laughs> I love my Pentecostal brethren, but we have some differences for sure. But that's one area we tend to agree is on the issue. You don't tend to see infant baptism in Pentecostal churches as much. Not saying it never happens, but certainly the minority report. And then we have on this side uh, another group, and that is a group that I would definitely separate myself from, and that is the Churches of Christ Now, the churches of Christ do believe in believer's baptism, meaning you have to be a believer to be baptized. But the churches of Christ have an entirely different doctrine of baptism in that they believe very similarly to the the groups right here. uh, They believe that baptism actually accomplishes the function of bringing about a person's regeneration. See, if you ask a Roman Catholic what happens when you're baptized... They will say that you are born again, that baptism causes regeneration. And regeneration is just the fancy theological word for being born again. So if you ask a Roman Catholic, what happens when you baptize that baby? That baby's born again. They were just born, now born again. All right? If you ask a Orthodox, same thing. It's being born again in the water. Now, Lutherans also believe that. Most people don't realize that. Lutherans believe in baptismal regeneration. They don't believe that the effects are applied until faith comes, but they do believe in regeneration 
through baptism. The Anglicans sort of have a, they always have a halfway. The via media is what they're known for. That means the middle road. (laughs) And their view is that baptism causes regeneration, but it actually, no, I'm sorry, there's grace in baptism, but they actually don't receive regeneration until they believe. So it's this, there's sort of two things happening. But the point is, when we get over here, Baptists and Presbyterians have a similar view and that neither of us would believe that baptism causes salvation. Neither of us would believe that baptism produces regeneration. You ask a Presbyterian when they baptize their infant, does that bring about their salvation? And if they're being in keeping with their theology, they will say no. Because even though they would say it marks them out, it makes them a member of the covenant, it brings them into the covenant community, all those things that they would believe, but they would be honest if they said, but it does not produce regeneration. So in that, Baptists and Presbyterians would be similar because we see baptism not as something that produces regeneration, but rather something that is a sign of entrance into the new covenant. Now, that brings me to the subject of circumcision. Because when we talk about circumcision, what was circumcision in the Old Testament? Circumcision was the sign by which children of the covenant were marked out from the rest of the world as being different from the rest of the world. And of course, it only was for boys because circumcision is a male operation. But it was meant to separate that child out from their, the world and separate them into the covenant community. Remember what I said last week? Circumcision has two parts. Separates out of and includes into. Separates out of the world, includes into the covenant community. Well, in a similar sense, baptism has that same effect. Because when we are baptized, what are we doing? We are saying to the world, I am separating from the world, and I am entering into this community of faith called the church. I'm being made a part of the church. In fact, in this church, you cannot join this church unless you have been baptized. Now, some churches don't hold to that, but we do. You have, to be, you have to be scripturally baptized before you can join this church because we believe that that sign is necessary as an act of obedience and a marking out of this person to be made part of the covenant community. In fact, if you've been through our new members class, you will know that because one of the things you have to acknowledge is either you have been baptized or you're willing to be baptized because can't join any other way. So, I want to mention this, thinking back. We would agree with the Presbyterians that baptism does not bring about regeneration, but rather it is a sign of entrance into the new covenant. But if you notice over here, I said these don't agree. These have a different understanding. And that's why when I move to this second portion, I hope this makes sense to you. Because not only do they have the majority report of the church, 
But they also have the majority report of history. Throughout the history of the church, the vast majority of baptisms that have occurred have been on that side of the fence. And that's, I, I, don't, I don't know anybody who would want to argue that, but if you want to come to me later and argue that there was some secret Baptist society that existed outside of the church, and there are people who believe there was a, there was a fringe church that existed outside of the mainline church, and that this fringe church has always practiced baptism. These are called landmark Baptists, and they have a very different view of church history than I do, because they believe there was a hidden underground Baptist church that's always existed. I don't agree. In fact, I, I interviewed a man on my show two weeks, three weeks ago, and I told him, because he, he believed it, and I said, I don't. <laughs> don't agree. But ultimately, if we look at the history of the church, infant baptism has been the majority report. The first time we see infant baptism being written about is in the third century. Let me write that right here. The third century, Cyprian mentions baptism, and the debate that he was discussing was whether or not infants should be baptized on the eighth day. Now, why would he care whether they were baptized on the eighth day? Because circumcision happened on the eighth day. So by the third century, there was a tie between circumcision and baptism that had arisen. Children were being baptized in Christian homes. And therefore, by the, which by the way, the third century is the 200. So around 250, we have writings that regard infant baptism. Okay? So historically, this has been going on for a long time. When does the first Baptist church, not the first Baptist church, but when does the first... When does the first Baptist, uh, when do the first Baptists arise in history? You may know. I said it earlier, think, 17th century. So the 17th century, I am not good at math, but I'm pretty sure that that is earlier than that by like a lot. Now, you may think that I'm trying to convince you of infant baptism. I'm not. I'm just giving you the facts, right? I've got to give you the facts. And, and these are the facts. The vast majority of church history has practiced infant baptism. That is without a fact. It was really without debate. And it goes back at least to the third century. After the time of Constantine, it was the majority report. Constantine would have been the fourth century. So, absolutely. Once the church became a state church and being baptized became a part of citizenship, it was absolutely the majority report. And that has to be understood historically as well. By the way, did you know there was a time in history where your baptism certificate could function as a birth certificate? Because that's how important baptism was in communities. Baptism was seen as a, as, as a sign of a person's entrance into the community. Not just the covenant community, but society in general. In a Christian nation, you understand America is not a Christian nation, right? Oh, I know I just made some people mad, but listen, listen up. America is not a Christian nation. Now, we can argue we were founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and we could talk about that all day long. But a Christian nation is a nation where, by virtue of citizenship, you are part of the church. We've never been that. But there have been nations that were. And so how do you become part of that church? 
or nation. You, you're baptized. It's part of your citizenship. In fact, this is one of the reasons why I believe Luther and Calvin were so adamant at keeping it. Because Luther and Calvin wanted to maintain the state church model. Luther and Calvin and Zwingli were what were known as magisterial reformers. Magisterial reformers means that they have the support of the magistrate or the city council's leaders behind them. And therefore, they wanted to maintain the link between church and state. America was a great experiment because America separated the link between church and state. But that link was there. Got a little off topic. Let me get back to baptism. Get into history for a second. But my point is, infant baptism was practiced much longer. But I, but I, I, I have to quickly add this in. The reason for it was different. The reason for it was different. Roman Catholics baptize infants for a different reason than Presbyterians. Do you understand why that matters? Because when a Presbyterian says, well, our baptism is 1,800 years old, slow down. The mode and candidate is the same, but the reason is different. See, the concept that Calvin introduced, which was the concept of familial solidarity, that we baptize our infants because they're part of the covenant family, was actually not the reason that the Roman Catholics baptized their infants. The reasons that the Roman Catholics baptized their infants was because they believed that they were born with original sin, and the original sin had to be washed away, or if they died, they would die and go to hell. You see the difference in the theology there? It's a much different theology. So when we consider that, we see that though the practice is ancient, the, the reason behind the practice is not consistent. And inconsistency is the hallmark of a failed argument. Ooh, now I'm getting saucy. Because I don't believe in infant baptism, but I do believe that it's been the majority of the report of the church. I got to give you the facts. But I also want you to notice something else. Notice that we see that it's the third century that it begins to be written about. What happened in the first and second centuries? That's a big question, right? Because we don't have anything outside of Scripture and early church writers that tell us what was happening. We have very little writing about infant baptism from that period of time. But we do have other writings. The Bible for instance, was written in the first century. And what's our sole infallible rule of faith and practice, church? The Bible, that's the definition of sola scriptura. The Bible alone is our infallible rule of faith and practice. So we go to the scriptures. But we also go to other historical documents, and one that I like to point to is one that some of you maybe have never heard of. How many of you have ever heard of the Didache? Okay, a few hands. Have you been in my class? I know you have. You've been in my class for years. I teach the academy class here, and I talk about the Didache a lot because I think it's an important document. It's not Scripture. <laughs> no doubt. We talked about this the other day. It's not Scripture. 
In fact, I would say it's probably written in the second century. So it's, it's outside of even the apostolic era. But it was written, I would say, probably in the mid, possibly mid-100s. Okay? So that's, a, that's, that's an old document. And I want you to hear what it says about baptism. I brought, I brought a copy of the relevant portion. This is from chapter 7 of the Didache. This was an early church document. And understand what the Didache was. The Didache was a document that was written as a manual of order for the early church. It deals with things like how to handle visitors and how to deal with people who are needing uh, uh, ministry within the church. There's all kinds of stuff the Didache deals with. And it's really neat to look at a 2,000-year-old document and say that's how the church was doing it 2,000 years ago because we still do deal with that stuff today. Me and Andy and Mike, when we have meetings, we're still talking about some of the same stuff. Well, hear what the Didache says regarding baptism within, we'll say within 200 years of the apostles. Within 200 years of the apostles. This is chapter 7, it's only a short paragraph. And concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in living water. But if you have not living water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot in cold, then in warm. But if you have not either, pour out water thrice upon the head in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to stop right there for just a moment. Isn't it interesting that it starts out with saying, baptize them in living water. Living water, by the way, is like a stream of running water. That's what living water is. It's, it's, it's moving water. So baptize them in the river. But if you can't baptize them in the river, baptize them in a pool. And make sure the water's cold. I didn't write it. <laughs> but it's like, make sure the water's cold. But if not, you can use warm. And if you don't have enough water, you can pour. I find that interesting because we often do make the big distinction whether you go in the pool or whether the water's poured on your head. We make that a big deal. Even by the time of this document, they were allowing for the pouring. So, okay, that's interesting. But here's the part that I find very interesting. But before the baptism, let the baptizer and the baptized, and whatever others can, fast. But you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before the baptism. So what does this document say? It says that in the early church, a baptismal candidate was required to fast before they could be baptized. Now, I don't know about you, but I ain't never seen an infant fast. The point of this is that the person who's being baptized is someone who understands what they're doing. So much so that they can enter into a spiritual discipline of fasting prior to their baptism. That is not something that you would expect to hear in a church that practices the baptism of infants. Now, does that prove anything? No. But it does point to a historical reality. 
that at least prior to the third century, we have a document that shows that there was a requirement for baptism that was fasting. And by the way, for those of you who are looking forward to being baptized here, we don't require fasting, but we do encourage it because it is a good spiritual discipline. And it is a good time of preparation before you enter into the water to be baptized. Now, all of that was introduction. Now let's look at the text. I have five minutes. <laughs> no, I, I got as much time as I want. Do you guys just leave? I just keep talking. <laughs> no, I want to I now address the scripture. Because again, we've gone back in history. We've showed both sides. We've said one side wins the war of how many churches? And one side wins the war of the historical practice. But that doesn't make it right. Because I could argue with you that the practice of praying to saints is also ancient. But none of us would agree that that is right. The practice of praying the rosary is over a thousand years old. But none of us would agree that we should be doing that. So let us be careful to always say that just because it has become tradition that that makes it correct. What does the Bible tell us about traditions? Everybody said something different. The Bible says a lot about traditions. Let me give you my answer. <laughs> it's like I didn't hear what everybody said. It says that we ought not teach as doctrines the commandments of men. Don't teach as doctrines the commandments of men. So what are the textual arguments? Well, one of the first textual arguments that comes up in regard to the subject of baptism is the fact that often in the Bible, when baptism is mentioned, households are mentioned. I'll give you three examples. In the case of Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 15, when Lydia was baptized, she was uh, also baptized along with her house. And we read that in Acts 16, verse 15. Another house that was baptized in that very same chapter was the Philippian jailer. You remember when Paul and Silas were singing in prison and the jailer came in, he was going to commit suicide and Paul says, don't hurt yourself, we're still here, we haven't escaped because the earthquake had opened up everything. And he went to their home with them that night and what did he do? He baptized them and who else? Their household. We also see in the book of 1 Corinthians the baptism of Stephanus, and it says the household of Stephanus. So this creates what's known as the doctrine of oikobaptism or household baptism, or oikos referring to household. And again, that is not proof. It's just an argument from the side of the infant baptizing who would say, well, if they baptized all the family, and it stands to reason that there may have been an infant in those homes, then they would have baptized the infant, and therefore we should baptize infants. Now, maybe you've heard that argument, maybe you haven't. Maybe you've dealt with that argument, maybe you haven't. I want to tell you my response to that is that one, I think that it is absolute conjecture to assume that there were infants in those households because very few households have infants uh, because I could go around the room right now 
and the vast majority of people in this room live in households where there are no infants. I happen to be an infant haver. That's not right. I couldn't think of a good word. I have an infant in my home, but I haven't for long. He's only been there for the last five months, right? I mean, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but not everybody in here has an infant. So to assume that these, these houses would have had infants, I think, is an assumption. And even Dr. Sproul in his lesson on this same subject, again, he disagrees with me. He even says he doesn't think this is the best of arguments because it's an argument from silence. It doesn't say there were infants and therefore it's conjecture at best. The second argument is the argument that children of believers, at least one believing parent, are made holy. And I'll invite you to turn to this one because this one may be one that we want to look at at least for a second. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And go to verse 14. It says in verse 14, it says, The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Right there, your children are called holy. And the argument goes, well, if your children are made holy, then they are candidates for baptism. My response, and I'm going to make this very short, you can hear my longer response if you want to go back. I was on a podcast recently where I actually debated a Presbyterian on this subject. And I showed that this argument, I don't think, holds water. But here's the simple part of my argument. If you're going to baptize the unbelieving child, then you have to baptize the unbelieving spouse. And they're not willing to do that. Because both of them are called holy in this passage. So I don't think that the argument holds water. It says both of them are made holy by the believing spouse. But we only baptize one. Why? Because of tradition, not because of the text. All right, another passage is Acts chapter 2. So if you want to turn there very quickly. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter is preaching, and he is asked in verse 20, uh, let's see, excuse me, verse 37. He is asked, what should we do? He just got done preaching his sermon on the day of Pentecost. And the response is from the people, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what do you do? You repent and you be baptized. That's what you do. That's how you respond to the gospel. Repent and be baptized, which is which is parallel to believe, because you wouldn't believe, you wouldn't be baptized if you didn't believe. So there's a parallel there. Repent and believe. Repent and be baptized. Verse 39 is the part that's normally disagreed upon. Because it says in verse 39, this promise is for you and for your children. And that's normally where they stop, by the way. Because they'll say, this is for you and your children. See, your children need to be baptized. But that's not where the verse stops, so that's not where we're going to stop. 
It says, for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What is, Paul, what is Peter saying? Peter was just asked a question. The question was, what do we do at the response of the gospel? How do we respond? Peter says, repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that promise... What's the promise? The gift of the Holy Spirit. That promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as our Lord will call to himself. So what Peter is saying is that yes, indeed, your children are included in the promise if they believe. They are included in the promise the same way anyone is included in the promise if they are called by God and given the gift of faith. So those are only a few passages. There are many others that we could discuss and debate. But ultimately, it all comes down to this question. Who is a member of the new covenant? Who is a member of the new covenant? The old covenant members were covenant members by birth. They were brought into the covenant of God by birth. New covenant members are brought in by rebirth. Recently, I interviewed Dr. James White, and I asked him, what would it take for you to become a Presbyterian. Now you might ask why I asked him that question. I asked him that question because he's very good friends with a man named Doug Wilson, who's a Presbyterian. And I know the two of them have had a lot of influence on one another. And so I jokingly said, I said, you've been spending a lot of time with Doug Wilson lately. What would it take for you to be a Presbyterian? He said, you'd have to take Hebrews 8 out of the Bible. So with that, I'd like for you to turn to Hebrews 8. In Hebrews chapter 8, the apostle who's right, well, we don't know who wrote it. I don't want to say the apostle, almost said the apostle Paul, but then I I would have struck myself because I don't believe the apostle Paul wrote this. Uh, A lot of people do, but I don't. But the one who did write the book of Hebrews says this. He says that we have a better covenant, a new covenant. And he quotes from the Old Testament promise. If you look at verse 8, showing that the old covenant was insufficient. In fact, I'll read at verse 7. He says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for the second covenant. Isn't that interesting that God's own word says that the old covenant is insufficient? He said, If it had been faultless, we wouldn't need another one. And then he goes on to say, verse 8, For he finds fault with it when he says, and he quotes here from the prophets. Listen what he says. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not Teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. The promise of the new covenant is that all of the members in the covenant actually know the Lord. Everyone in the new covenant has been born again. And we already said, baptism doesn't make you born again. So who is a right candidate for baptism? One who has been born again. How do we know that? The only way we can know, by a profession of faith. So, that, so that's where I'm going to end today. How do we know who to baptize? When should little Johnny be baptized? I get that question a lot. Not necessarily Johnny, but... People ask me, when should my son be baptized? When should my daughter be baptized? Because we, it, it would be easier if we baptized them as infants because then we don't have to figure anything out. We actually have the harder way because the harder way is this. We baptize upon a credible profession of faith. Whew. What does that mean? Well, to have a credible profession of faith, first they have to understand the gospel. If you're in counseling with me for baptism right now, the first thing I want to know is that you understand the gospel because if you don't, you're not ready to be baptized. And number two, they must repent of their sins and be willing to follow Christ. Jesus said they got to be able to take up their cross and follow him. Be willing to take up their cross and follow him. So when you bring your child to me and say, little Johnny's ready to be baptized, does he know the gospel? And is he ready to repent of his sin and follow Christ? Now that is, at age is different. I don't say there's a magical, gotta be 12, gotta be 16, gotta be 18. But I will say this, I was baptized at eight years old and I shouldn't have been. And I know many of you have told me the same thing. You were baptized as a child and you didn't really understand the gospel and you weren't really saved. So, what do you do about that? Well, we believe that, if, that baptism is a sign for believers and therefore if you've been baptized prior to faith, we would encourage you to receive a proper baptism. I'm not going to say a second baptism but a proper baptism. Are you saying then that infant baptism is improper? I have to. And I say that knowing that men I love would disagree. But upon conviction, a proper baptism is one where the person being baptized can confess the gospel 
repentance, and faith. So my question to you today, and this is where I'll end for you, is have you been properly baptized? Have you been baptized as a believer? If so, you never need do it again. No matter how much you struggle with sin, no matter what happens in your life, if you've been baptized as a believer, that isn't something that has to be repeated over and over and over and over again. I've seen churches where their baptismal roles are filled every year because everybody gets baptized every year. Because every time something bad happens, they feel like they've got to get rebaptized. And we don't want that here. Baptism is a sign given once upon profession of faith. It doesn't have to be repeated over and over. But if you have not been baptized since you believed, there's no excuse not to be. There's no excuse not to be. So my encouragement today is for you to simply ask yourself where you're at. Where are you in regard to your baptism? And if you feel like I haven't met the burden of proof, understand this. I I kept this to under an hour. We could be here for six hours and I wouldn't finish. So if anybody has questions, feel free to reach out. Would love to answer any questions that you have. I love you all and I hope this was encouraging. I know it's a little different than normal, but I pray that it's been a blessing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you that though we can differ with our brethren in the faith, we don't condemn them. We simply show charity and love and say, while we think that they are incorrect, we know that if they have professed faith and trusted in him and been born again of the spirit, then they too have, in fact, been made part of the kingdom of God. I pray now that as we remember the second ordinance of the Lord's table, That, Lord, we would remember that while baptism is only to be done once in the life of a believer, the Lord's table is here for us every week to remind us of our union with Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.